This is an ABC podcast. Trying to guess the future is a timeless and time-consuming human pursuit. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. Getting a prediction wrong can have catastrophic consequences if you're talking about geopolitics or military strategy. And it can be economically costly as well. Take fashion, for example. It's one of the world's largest industries and accounts for around 2% of global GDP, which is not to be sneezed at. It has always been really important for fashion brands to don't miss out on trends. And there's a lot of work going into mapping what is coming. And there's always been these experts working with fashion trend forecasting. Camilla Grintheim Larsen, a researcher and consultant based in Norway. In the 70s, the first agencies started to pop up in Paris and they were predicting the next in fashion. And then all of the big brands, they have been used to paying high prices to get these insights from agencies. You know, it's not a coincidence if during a fashion week, a lot of brands showcase similar looks. It's because they have been given kind of the same predictions from these agencies. So if agencies are presenting forecasts saying that, you know, animal patterns will be a big thing, then you would see several brands doing that. And it's not a coincidence that they all do zebra pattern at the same season. So it has always been a big part of it. But the big change now is that before there used to be fashion people, fashion experts, fashion gurus, people with a lot of trend knowledge, historical knowledge about how trends work and meeting people, traveling, going to trend hunt on the ground, visiting cities, going to Milan, looking at what women are wearing in Europe and then reporting back and always trying to be the first to know. So the big difference now is that with big tech, big data, AI, they have this advantage that they have a lot of data and then they can use that data to forecast trends presumably more accurate than those fashion experts. Which brings us to the subject of today's program, the changing role for humans in the business of forecasting and problem solving. Now, I said changing because this isn't a simple narrative about how AI is taking over the world. It's much more complicated and nuanced. We are still in a really early phase of exploring the potential of AI in fashion. So we don't know yet what it could do for fashion. One thing is to use AI to analyze your customer data and predict uh, what product you should make more of and what you should stop making because it doesn't sell. That's one thing. But an AI can also be used to design garments. And this is something that Facebook has been trying out. They did an experiment with AI to design a thousand fashion garments. And then they reviewed what these garments looked like. And most of them were kind of okay. 
but it was funny because the AI designed pants with three legs. So that was kind of, yeah, something that the machines still, they don't have common sense and they, they just take garments and put them together in new ways to be creative, but they don't understand that humans don't have three legs. So it's still a way to go before designing with AI is where it should be or yeah, what they want it to be. So the first point to make is that while artificial intelligence is being used more and more in the practice of prediction, human creativity still has its place. And that's as true for political science as it is for fashion or any other endeavour. It could be that the growing use of AI forecasting tools is simply part of our modern obsession with data and machine learning. But it may also reflect lingering doubts about the overall effectiveness of human analysis. The experts get a bit of a bum rap from my earlier work on expert political judgment. It's not that all experts performed as poorly as dart-throwing chimps. There were conditions under which some experts could perform significantly better than chance, and there were conditions under which experts could perform at chance levels, and there are even a few conditions under which experts did worse than chance. So it's a little more nuanced picture, but the experts did not acquit themselves all that well in that earlier work. University of Pennsylvania professor Philip Tetlock, one of the leaders in forecasting theory and practice. We all have a rather insatiable need, don't we, to figure out what's around the corner, what what lurks in the future. Uh, Some of us go to uh, fortune tellers and astrology charts, and other people uh, look to econometric models at central banks. (laughs) Different strokes for different folks. I think that some approaches to predicting the future work out better on average than others do. But there are real limits on how predictable the future is. Even when you're using the most sophisticated analytical techniques, you can only get so far in predicting the future. And that that leaves us frustrated. It's unsettling. Professor Tedlock's research eventually led to the idea that while most analysts and people involved in traditional forms of crystal ball gazing actually weren't all that good at it, there were some individuals who excelled. One of those involved in that research was political scientist Michael Horowitz. What we found was that there were these particular sets of of forecasters, you know, in a crowd of thousands, people that were exceptionally creative, that were, were really paying attention to what was going on in the world, that worked well in teams, that you could put them together, and they could be even in small teams, in teams of you know 10 or 20, incredibly accurate compared to you know large crowds, compared to statistical models, you know, things you'd expect to be much better. And, and professors Tedlock and Meller dubbed them super forecasters. And uh, you know, the name stuck. And super forecasters now appear to be the flavor of the moment. Various governments and organizations have been running trials to test just how good they are and how to increase their numbers. In some cases, pitting them against each other in competitions, including one in the UK, bizarrely called Cosmic Bazaar. In the Cosmic Bazaar approach that the British are using, it's this open forecasting tournament for, for I think, anybody in the British government. At least I, I could be getting that wrong, to be clear, but that's my understanding of it. And they're, they're trying to identify you know, who are the people that might have this kind of talent at assigning probabilities to potential events around the world. And they, you know, maybe it's, it's people in your intelligence community, people that are trained to do that. Maybe it's not, though. You know, maybe there, there's a lot of talent out there in the world. 
And part of what these approaches are designed to do is, you know, find those really talented people and try to, you know, use their skill to improve geopolitical forecasting. And what's understood as the characteristics of a super forecaster? What makes these individuals so accurate in their predictions? I think super forecasters, they tend to be intelligent. They tend to be very curious. They've generally been through training that teaches you how to counteract some of the biases that we all have and how we understand the world. Like the fact that the first piece of information you look at, you're likely to believe and then compare everything else to that first piece of information. Or the fact that you know, things that happen more recently tend to weigh more heavily in your mind. So they're good at counteracting those biases. And they're also good at updating in response to new information. And not just you know, making a call and sticking with it, no matter how the world looks, but looking out there at the world and being willing to update their understanding of the world, their forecasts for events as things change. And those attributes, are we seeing or are we likely to see traditional analysts being trained in that kind of way? I mean, being encouraged to use some of those approaches? There's a lot of potential. I mean, analysts in our intelligence agencies are incredibly smart. They're incredibly creative. They know so much about the world. And in some ways, what I think our research illustrates is that if you can give them some of this training and encourage them to you know, use these kinds of forecasting approaches, there's a lot of uh, potential upside, even within our existing governments, the ability to get more accurate. And, and I think what the, the key thing that's potentially missing is, you know, is political will. And one of the things that's been remarkable about, the, about Cosmic Bazaar and the British approach is the way that it, you know, it seems to be you know, gathering some momentum within the British government. Although, you know, of course, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. From your research, what motivates a super forecaster? What are they seeking from their involvement? At least from what I've seen personally from when I was more on the research side of this several years ago is, was recognition. Recognition of their talent and expertise. And one of the things about forecasting tournaments is that because there is a right or wrong answer, you know, either your forecast was accurate, you know, either, either it was right or wrong at the end of the day and, and it can be scored, it allows you to separate the wheat from the chaff. And so people that are, are not just motivated to be right, but, but want that recognition, it may be a little bit competitive. Those are the kinds of people that are you know, maybe more likely to succeed in these kinds of tournament environments. How do traditional analysts react to that idea of opening up the, the doors to others? I think the idea behind a tournament, behind you know, not just keeping score in any individual question, but in having a leaderboard, is that it really drives home who's right and who's wrong. The key in some ways is accountability. Accountability means if you predict something will happen and it happens, you get credit for that. And that if you predict something will happen and it doesn't happen, that you don't get credit for that. And keeping score over, you know, not just one question, not just 10 questions, but, you know, about 100 questions or more helps you figure out not just who got lucky, you know, once or twice, but who really has talent. And then the key becomes, how do you continue to get people to participate if they're not high up on the leaderboard? On the larger question of pushback over these methods in general, I haven't seen much active resistance by analysts or policymakers to the new methods that IARPA and other organizations have developed for making forecasts. IARPA is the US government's intelligence research agency, and Dr. Stephen Reber is their head of forecasting. On the other hand, if these methods are going to get widely used, 
they have to be embraced by the analysts who are actually producing the intelligence analysis. And there, I think some work needs to be done to provide not only the probabilities, but also the reasons why that probability is assigned. As to super forecasters having a particular bad reputation, I don't think I've seen that either. In the the U.S. intelligence community, we have what was known as the intelligence community prediction market, which was a crowd forecasting system, which any intelligence analyst could participate in. They started out with a certain number of points, and they could earn more points through their accuracy. Some of them were millionaires in points. Now, I should emphasize there was no monetary value to these points. They were just for play purposes. And they actually, the ones that I spoke with, the super prediction market participants, they tended to be proud of their results. And I don't think that they were dismissed by other analysts. I think they were admired. One thing that I hear from analysts when they see the probabilistic forecasts that the methods that IARPA has developed produce, they'll say, that's just a number. What am I supposed to do with a 68% chance that war will break out between these two countries. So what the analysts, what the intelligence analysts need, I believe, is going beyond just the numbers to providing some new insight as to why that event, that possible future event, has the probability assigned to it. So does that mean that there's still a role for traditional analysts to do the work that they have traditionally done in terms of monitoring and assessing situations married to the newer forms of forecasting that focus more on percentages? Yes, absolutely. There is a role for analysts. And I think it's unlikely to make a forecast myself that these new methods for forecasting will displace the role that analysts have always played, which is not simply to make forecasts, but to explain what's happening and why, and why the future events that are being forecast are likely to come about. Forecasting is only one part of the intelligence analyst's job. And in addition to making judgments about the future, they, of course, are making judgments about what did happen. Why did that jet crash? What is going on now between those two countries? So the forecasting is one aspect of the intelligence analyst's work, but it's by no means exhaustive. And it can be challenging to answer questions about what did happen, particularly when other countries are trying to conceal that. It can be just as challenging to make accurate judgments about what has been going on and what's going on now as it is about the future. There is nothing more important than asking the right question. If you don't ask the right question, then the answer doesn't matter. And for these geopolitical forecasting approaches to work, or frankly, any geopolitical forecasting approach to work, whether it's more qualitatively based, whether it involves scenario planning, whether it involves a statistical model, whether it involves you know a crowd or, or super forecasters, asking the right question is absolutely essential, which is why, in some ways, you need trained experts to work on question generation, to try to formulate questions that are falsifiable, and that are impactful in ways that can help really busy policymakers quickly understand the world. And I think absolutely critical moving forward is not just developing good communication strategies. You know, how do you persuade policymakers that uh, you know a shift from 30% to 40% in the probability of something is important? 
but in, in having that question be something that they care about that's meaningful to them. And so, you know, all of these efforts will be for naught if we can't come up with a good way to generate questions that are meaningful and impactful for policymakers. And removing ambiguity, says IARPA's Stephen Reber, is also crucial. In 1951, Sherman Kent at the CIA led the production of an intelligence report in which one of the key judgments was, I'm roughly quoting here, an attack on Yugoslavia by the Soviet Union should be considered a serious possibility. Kent later talked with uh, one of the consumers of the intelligence report, a policymaker who said, what did you mean when you people in intelligence wrote that it was a serious possibility? Ken replied, well, sir, we think it's pretty high likelihood, maybe two to one in favor of an attack. And the policymaker was taken aback because he had interpreted the phrase serious possibility as much lower odds. Ken went back and asked his colleagues who helped him draft, write the report, how they interpreted that phrase serious possibility of a Soviet attack on Yugoslavia. And the answers that he collected ranged from 20% to 80%. So the point about this ambiguity is that it's hidden usually, and Kent took a major step in bringing it to the attention of the intelligence community. So in the systems that we develop, the methods, I suppose I should call them, that IARPA develops, we strive to make every question precisely phrased and every answer unambiguous by having it use numerical probability. And how difficult is it to do that? It can be tricky. And there's a balance to be struck between these precise questions that can be scored for accuracy and thus enable us to continually improve our forecasting methods on the one hand. And on the other hand, the big policy relevant questions that concern our decision makers. You're with Future Tense on RN, ABC Radio National, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. The rise of the super forecaster would seem to contradict the very popular notion of the wisdom of the crowd, which has been a basic tenet of digital culture for at least the last decade. Both Michael Horowitz and Stephen Reber believe the two have complementary roles. And according to Associate Professor Oz Archer, crowdsourcing platforms for prediction and problem solving remain hugely popular. We are probably looking at hundreds of these platforms in different shapes and forms, both global and local ones. We're also looking at millions of crowdsourcing challenges in various contexts ranging from tackling hardcore R&D problems to generating new brand slogans. So there are also many corporate initiatives. Many companies run their own internal or external crowdsourcing challenges without using any intermediary platforms. I think the main reason why we are seeing a resurgence is that the digital technologies and advance in communication technologies now allowed us to really connect more people than ever it was possible. It's a really challenging time for this world right now. We just can't pick what's going to happen next. It's like a roller coaster. These global problems aren't going away, but we all know the world is capable of giving so much more. One well-established crowdsourcing site that we've spoken about on this program before is Mindhive. 
Mindhive is effectively what they call an IQ collective intelligence platform, or in other words, it's a, a platform where you bring together ideas and insights from as many people from as many diverse locations across the world on as many different topics as you're interested in. Mindhive CEO Bruce Muirhead. So we have many people in a community, about 12,000 people who would be, you know, you'd call thought leaders, curious people who are interested in participating in conversations and discussions around things that matter to them. And then we've got lots of corporates and governments and NGOs who've got issues which are challenging them and they're looking for diverse ideas. They're looking for potential insights that sort of give them that aha moment. It might not be the solution, but it's something that might nudge or bump them towards some solutions or new strategies and so forth. And does that include, in that membership, does that include people with no formal expertise in the particular area that's being discussed? Yeah, it's been, it's interesting, Anthony, since I spoke to you last, we've sort of broadened our understanding of what expertise is. And it's really important because we're seeing it. We've just actually partnered with a university in San Francisco who run nano courses. They create them in 30 days and have teaching teams and students going on real-time topics. And we're very excited by that. Universities are changing rapidly. So what was their bastion of, they had the uh, ownership, I guess, of expertise on the Hill, senior consultants, expertise from some consulting houses, and so forth. We're seeing how expertise is now being almost redefined and people are participating in these challenges who are like taxi drivers after their work in Abu Dhabi, are participating a lot on Kaggle, which is a big data analytics. They're generating incomes greater than academics. You've got dentists, a dentist in Thailand just won a um, challenge on health data, on predictive health data and who would go to hospital next. So we're seeing the, the redefining of expertise. We've been opening up to being, well, who's curious and allowing our community to acknowledge experts. So not too similar to an Uber driver getting a score for being a good Uber driver. We've built a reward and recognition program into Mindhive that allows if someone's solving a problem, and they're doing really well, and the community is recognising them, they rise to the top. And so our community is broadening to those who are curious problem solvers and who are interested in um, shared insights. So having a broad range of members can benefit a crowdsourced forecasting platform. But maximising participation shouldn't be the ultimate aim, says Oz Archer from City University of London. Too many participants, he says, can become as big a problem as too few. The core premise of crowdsourcing is that a large and diverse crowd should have fresh ideas and perspectives to contribute. And this is indeed one of the reasons why crowdsourcing has historically been valuable to solve important innovation problems. Yet in practice, this scale and diversity often mean volumes of useless ideas. I think a good example is BP's failed crowdsourcing initiative when the Deepwater Horizon oil spill sent millions of gallons of oil into the Gulf of Mexico, BP was understandably desperate. And they turned to the crowd to find ways to fix it. And the crowd responded positively. And within weeks, the company received over 120,000 ideas from more than 100 countries. As one would imagine, sifting these ideas was an enormous undertaking. And most of them turned out to be completely unusable. In fact, it was described as a lot of effort for little result in the media. So this process of separating wheat from the shaft is not only extremely time-consuming and costly, 
but also biases how ideas are selected. Others research, for example, shows that when evaluators in crowdsourcing receive too many ideas, they tend to focus on ideas that are already familiar to them, which kind of defeats the entire purpose of crowdsourcing. So what's the appeal? Why would companies then still want to take a crowdsourcing approach? Why is it still popular? First, there are historical examples that are successful. And second, the idea that you can bring a lot of fresh minds, a lot of original perspectives into your innovation process is quite appealing. I think also there is this element of engaging sometimes with your consumers and so on. And I think that also has this additional benefit. Now, your research suggests that what's crucial to the usefulness of any crowdsourcing initiative is understanding the motivations of the crowd members. You identify five different motivations, don't you? So the first one is intrinsic motivation, which refers to participating in a crowdsourcing challenge because of genuine love for creative problem solving. The second one is learning motivation, meaning that participating to a crowdsourcing initiative to learn new things. And the third one is pro-social motivation, so taking part to make a positive impact on others. And the fourth is social motivation, that is motivation to be part of a social community, so kind of motivation to belong. And the fifth and final one is extrinsic motivation. So some club members focus mainly on winning the prize money or other benefits such as recognition and better career prospects. So that would be the five main motivations that would drive club members to take part in different initiatives. And of those five, which are the most important in terms of producing high-quality results, high-quality solutions? What I found is intrinsic and extrinsic motivations produce the highest quality solutions. One plausible explanation is that these motivations direct more attention and effort toward addressing the constraints of the problem, like the technical requirements of it or the specified goals there. And this in turn leads to more valuable solutions. So intrinsic motivation should bring about a stronger focus on the problem and its details, as the problem itself is the main reason for engagement. In a similar vein, Extensively motivated people should attend to the problem details more because winning rewards or whatever extrinsic outcome they are motivated for often depends on meeting problem constraints. The idea of having some kind of prize, some kind of money or status attached to an initiative like this, how important is that? So it therefore makes sense to think not only in terms of monetary prizes, but also above and beyond money. Indeed, one could and probably should get really creative in terms of designing extrinsic benefits. For instance, they could feature winning solutions in social media or incorporate gamification tools such as status badges. I also want to note one key point about monetary prizes. The worst thing one could do in this respect is providing a low monetary price. My other research actually shows that when you provide a low price, you end up getting worse ideas than providing nothing at all. So the key takeaway is that you need to pay enough, or if you can't do that, don't pay anything at all and just focus on other forms of extrinsic prizes. Why do you get worse results if the prize isn't uh, significant enough? So what happens is I think it has also, it shifts people's motivation. So if you are provided a really low price, it just doesn't motivate you enough extrinsically. It also comes across as a kind of bad paying job. So it's detrimental for your intrinsic motivation. It almost creates some level of reactance among members. So what we found is you get the best outcomes if you pay 
decently or get you a high price or pay nothing at all than just giving them a low price. So identifying members with intrinsic and extrinsic motivations is crucial, but what about the other motivations, social learning and pro-social? Can they be helpful? Yes, I think it is important to consider the overall goal of the initiative before discounting these motivations. If an initiative has a long-term focus, instead of being a one-off initiative to solve a specific problem, learning motivation might be productive, as members can use what they've learned to develop better ideas in future activities, even if they don't do very well in a specific challenge. Likewise, pro-social and social motivations may create value when ideas are generated collectively as people with these motivations are likely to go the extra mile to help others improve their ideas. So they may have an indirect contribution to overall success of an initiative. Associate Professor Oz Archer from City University of London. We also heard today from Bruce Muirhead, the CEO of Mindhive, Dr Stephen Reber from the US Intelligence Research Agency, IARPA, Professor Michael Horowitz, the Director of Perry World House at the University of Pennsylvania, Professor Philip Tetlock, and researcher and consultant Camilla grindheim Larson. My colleague and co-producer here at Future Tense is Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.